0: I think we can sum up what the Buddha taught, what he advised in a way of showing us how we can use our energy in our life in our lives. He summed it up in, in these three ways that we can use our energies, our lives to cultivate the good. We can use our lives to relinquish what leads to suffering. And we can also use our lives to develop wisdom. And it's interesting and so true that when we cultivate the good, it rests the mind. It opens the mind. When we relinquish what leads to suffering, it does the same. rests the mind and heart. And so when the mind and heart are in this way, it naturally opens to the wisdom that's always available to us. Tonight I'd like to speak about metta, or loving-kindness, as a way to access wisdom, as a very foundation for wisdom. And I'd like to talk about metta, or loving-kindness, not especially in terms of the ideals that we often hear about it, uh, which sometimes we can relate to as almost unreachable, you know, when we hear about this way of unconditional love. But I'd also like to talk about it in terms of it being a kind of a, a work in progress, you know, the, the actual way that it, it unfolds in, in our hearts, During the first half of this retreat, when I was a yogi, I did uh, practice metta most of the time. So while it's still kind of fresh, I I want to share some of the things with you, just some very simple, um, helpful ways that I've seen that uh, it's helped me, and sort of some tools that I used within the metta practice itself. It's always been um, helpful for me to understand that I can't really do loving-kindness practice unless I'm mindful. And mindfulness can't exist without loving-kindness. They both serve one another. They both are a support for one another. In fact, metta, or loving-kindness, is a mindfulness practice. Being mindful of the phrases, being mindful of uh, the envisioning or the felt sense of the person that we are pervading metta to, being mindful of the feeling that comes about, being mindful of the state of mind if we're doing any kind of absorption practice. And so really they both weave together. And so this uh, offering to you tonight is is kind of a weaving together, um, a kind of collage of and about metta. I've told this story a few times, so, um, but it's kind of an interesting one, and I think stories make our ears perk up. So I try to um, put them in my dharma talks more. And this one is about when I visited one time Upandita, one of my Dhamma teachers, and I hadn't seen him for a while. And uh, as you know, Upandita has been one of our teachers and and one of our major teachers in the Vipassana practice and also in the Metta practice. I practice both under Metta and Vipassana with Upandita, but I have so respected him for the way in which he has always turned back the energy towards looking into my own heart and uh, not depending on anyone else to open the heart, train the mind for me. And in this particular time, when I went to see him after not having seen him for a long time, he was teaching a course. And I was in the area, and I went down to offer him some dana, a meal dana. And um, I was waiting for him to come down after a bit of rest in the morning, and he came down the stairs. And I don't feel like particularly uh, a mushy-gushy loving feeling towards him, (laughs) but I have great reverence and respect for him. And when I saw him, it surprised me that I, I had tears in my eyes when I saw him. And I put my hands together when he came down the stairs uh, in reverence. And I said out loud, I'm so happy to see you, Venerable Sir Bhante. I'm so happy to see you. And he said something in response. And I don't know if it was Burmese or Pali, but. Um, You know, I just sort of let that go, and we exchanged a little bit, a conversation. And later on when he left, the one person who was uh, there asked me if I wanted to know what he said. Well, I wasn't quite sure whether I really wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) But I said, yes, I do, okay. And um, they said to me, "This, this is a translation that they picked up, that he said to me, I'm not here to make you happy. <laughs> I'm here to make you mindful. And so, okay. <laughs> I knew that <laughs> all along. In fact, I know one of the things that Manindra has said over and over again, and I think I heard Joseph say this in the first half, um, the Buddha solved his own problem. Now it's up to you to solve yours. You know, I would hear Manindra say this to me. And another thing I would hear said is, the Buddha pointed the way. It's up to you to follow it. You know, it takes our own efforts, our own walking of the path. And so that is a side of, you know, really the the dedication and the commitment and the, just um, kind of fervor in a way that Upandita uh, offers the teachings of the Buddha. Just this total commitment to being awake, being mindful, and so that's one part of our practice. You know, being really being mindful, and even in our metta practice, and that's been a great model to me. Uh, the way. Sometimes that Upandita would bring out the sort of wisdom, and and not pull any punches, and just be straight on, you know, and not sit back and say, "Well, I'll just let this yogi take a few more lifetimes to suffer and to go through," rather than just telling me like it is. I appreciate that. And then there's a the model of Manindra, who is himself. He's a, he has a balance within himself also, just as Upandita does. But mostly, he exudes a lot of metta. They, people sometimes call him a walking, talking, dhamma encyclopedia. You know, because as many of us have experienced, if you ask him any one question, he can take lots and lots of time to answer even just one question. One time I heard Joseph say in a talk that Someone asked a question and he didn't stop until the last person in the room left. He, I mean, he just has, you know, that much um, enthusiasm in a way for the Dhamma and just so much. And, uh, in fact, on, on a recent uh, journey, uh, pilgrimage to, to India that uh, myself and a couple of friends did... Uh, I really was on a pilgrimage to see Manindra, but he wanted us to visit some of the holy places, which we visited two of them. And when we were in Bodhgaya, uh, there was one time he said, well, okay, well, now we're going to sit. And we were in Bodhgaya in, in a place where uh, we were doing some practice for a few days, or uh, attempting to, and he, uh, someone asked him a question, and he just went on and on and on with the answers and um, quoting all kinds of the Dhamma from all different sides. It's just a wonderful source. Um, when we were in Sarnath, his, uh, just being an example of Metta, kind of a, a walking Metta himself, when we were in Sarnath, you couldn't go down the street without so many people coming up to him. And, um, you know, asking him how he was. And then he, in turn, being so filled with so much metta, caring, connecting so much with that individual. Well, how is your mother? And how are your children? And just that constant connection over and over again, which metta is. Connecting and caring is really what metta is all about. And during that time when we were in Sarnath, I was ill. And um, he was scurrying around like a little mother, you know, looking, making sure that the the kitchen where we were staying would make me some soup, and um, making sure that I was warm and had enough water and all of that. Just, just an example uh, just a very pure example of metta. Actually, when we were going down, when we were walking down the streets of Sarnath, what would take us five minutes would, with Manindra, take a half an hour or 45 minutes because it would take so long just to get down not a very long street, you know, the busy part of um, Sarnath. So, netta and mindfulness. These two practices that we do here create a very important balance in our practice. They serve each other. They serve as foundations for one another, for us to open our heart, train our minds. The word metta is a very ancient word. In Sanskrit, it is uh, translated into English as gentle or friend. And it really has a subjective visceral sense of that kind of gentleness. In fact, in the text, it's sometimes described as a gentle rain that falls on everything without discrimination, a gentle rain. And that's sometimes how it feels when a moment of metta is there, actually, in your own heart. It feels like a warm rain is falling within your own heart kind of putting out the fires of ill will. It also means friend, and it really inclines the mind towards that kind of friendship with oneself. Because when we have that kind of friendship, when we befriend ourselves in that way, we're able then to more easily open to what's difficult in our hearts. And when we can open to that, a lot, a lot is so dissolved and solved. It's what we find in our own hearts and maybe that we're unconscious of that we project onto others, which causes ill will, impatience, all of those qualities that are so hard to bear in ourselves and in others. One of the ways that the Buddha describes metta in the Abhidhamma, which is kind of called the book of higher learning or higher wisdom, uh, is as non-aversion. And that's, I mean, when I looked it up, you would think it would be described as some other kind of way. You know, we hear the poems, love is gentle, love is kind, and blah, blah, blah. But... uh, No, I mean, the the Buddha described it as non-aversion. And when you look, when you really look at a moment of metta, it's just like that. It's like there's this stillness, and there's this non-pushing away of what's going on, of whatever experience is happening. Just like that. It's it's not a mind that's inclining towards some kind of over-enthusiastic kind of mushy state it's really a mind that's more and heart that's more inclining towards serenity towards a kind of stillness and and quietness and contentedness it inclines towards serenity is one of the ways that it is described and so we might be expecting metta to be experienced as some kind of oh, I love you so much kind of thing, you know, but it isn't like that at all. It's a very calm and quiet, non-agitated, non-aversive state of mind. I heard this example on um, a kind of snippet of a Dharma talk that Achan Suchito gave, and he said... um, you know it, it it's not that kind of description is not so acceptable in our society, though. Imagine saying to somebody, "You know, well, I've known you for a long time already. we've gotten to know each other, and um you know i i I have no aversion towards you." <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we just don't say it that way we're, we're you know the hallmark cards kind of make us say it in a different way um, <laughs> But it's really that state of non-aversion. You know, I can just imagine writing home to one of my children and signing it, non-aversion, mom. <laughs> no, it's, they, you know, you just... When we incline the mind towards this kind of serenity, towards this kind of befriending ourselves, and we open in a kind of truthful, honest way to what's going on, we... We discover, much to our dismay and, and um, disappointment, but in a way, like the truthfulness is so bold and um, opening to it is so strengthening that it's okay to see that we have this kind of subtle aggression towards ourselves in life. And especially in our meditative practice, this kind of subtle aggression to push things away that we don't like or to fix things that we don't like in ourselves mostly, which translates towards others too. Which is why when we see it in ourselves, it's the root of, of all of our suffering and how it, it's kind of put out there in the world. The energy that is needed... Um, to open to what's going on, to recognize with that kind of um, sobering truthfulness and to recognize it in a way that allows us to have some interest with what's going on instead of saying, oh, I don't like that, to say, hmm, that's interesting and to come closer to it in a way that allows us to sink into it more, which is the way of investigating it, you know, to really directly experience what's happening. Like that metaphor I offered of the river of just going, connecting with what's happening on going on and sustaining, just kind of immersing ourselves for a minute in that moment of experience of investigating it in that very direct way and when we get so close, in that kind of closeness, it allows us to see the, the, the truth of what's going on and how it's all so moving and dissolving and impermanent and how it's, it's just so contingent. Everything that happens in one moment is contingent upon everything else. There's no control over it. There's no self and how our fixated ideas cause suffering. And so when we get closer and see these truths, which we can only do with the support of metta, with the support of kindness, with the support of this kind of gentle befriending of ourselves, this is the support, this is the foundation for wisdom, which the Buddha talked about. One of the ways which, one of the aims of metta is to serve as this very firm foundation for wisdom to arise. So all of this is, it sounds good, you know. It's to befriend ourselves, to be gentle. It sounds good, and, and it's true, but it's not that easy to do. It's quite challenging to do this, we really need to know the balance between the kind of gentleness we need and the kind of going forth, even with that gentleness, going forth into the moment, leading into the moment with our hearts, with a kind of strength of saying, okay, I can face this, I can open to this, and then experiencing it so deeply that it it brings us to the truth, liberating truth. So we do need that gentleness. We do need that kind of effort that brings us forth. Um, Manindra used to always say, you know, you can't just sit under the mango tree and wait for the mangoes to fall in your hands. You really have to plant the seed to make sure the soil is is good soil to make sure it's watered, to make sure it gets sunlight. This is a quote from from Isabel Allende, one of um, my favorite authors. She says, uh, and this is about the time she was uh, going into the age of 45, 50. By that time, she says, a woman knows that love is work, it doesn't just bloom like a flower in the desert by a miracle. It is something you work on every day. And so it takes that gentle persevering effort with our metta practice or with inclining the mind towards that kind of goodness over and over and over again. So with all of these, um, uh, with metta, which is loving-kindness, compassion, which is uh, called karuna, a sympathetic joy, you'll hear that word mudita, and um, equanimity, you'll, you'll hear the Pali word upeka. All of these Brahma-viharas, these divine abodes, and their practices train us uh, to recognize to recognize, over and over and over and over again, that goodness within us, those strengths of mind and heart that are within us that support our practice. To recognize through reconnecting, through connecting with them, and when we do a kind of um, intensive meta practice, which many of us do, or even if we just if we do it a part of the day or we do it as a practice of inclining the mind towards our goodness, towards kindness. Uh, When we don't do it as a kind of bhavana practice, a a jhana or absorption practice, but in a way of, um, you know, when you see the mind going towards anger, of just relinquishing that and having this intention that can be so deep-seated through this constant work of inclining the mind that it says, not in these so many words, but it's but no I'm not going there. And it just the mind inclines towards non aversion. So we begin to reactivate the goodness within us this way. And these are the tools that we have to face the diversity of life. mindfulness is described as that generosity of heart, that generosity of spirit, that it's a willingness to offer our love no matter what's happening, a willingness to just to give our love even though it's hard for us to give our love. Because we know deep down inside that from our own know- knowing and befriending our own hearts that this is what all beings want. We may not know how to go about it, and so we go about it in unwise ways. But all beings want really this kind of to know this kind of goodness, this kind of goodness of love, of kindness, of uh, this kind of peace and serenity. And so it's that kind of generosity, that kind of willingness of spirit that says, Just as I wish to be peaceful and happy, open my heart. May you also open your heart. So it's a giving, even when we know we may not get that in return from people that we love, from people that we have a hard time with. In my in my practice in this last um, last month, and in the in the weeks that I was practicing, when I came to the the difficult person and opened to the difficult person, pervading metta in that direction, it really took effort. You know, some wounds got opened, old wounds from before, the wounds of feeling blamed. And it was really hard to pervade metta in that direction. And one of the only things that helped was to know you too want to be happy, just like me. And so, can I pervade that? Can I offer that to you also, knowing that I may never get that in return from you or get any kind of acknowledgement or any kind of rectification or reconciliation. And so that was one pathway that I could use in in my metta practice. It was hard to do, but just keeping at it, the effort to keep at it, really kind of cracked the seed or cracked the shell. It's sort of interesting that um, when I came across this, this is from, in the state of Hawaii, there are these general provisions, and um, in a lot of people refer to the state we live in as the compassionate state. And one time somebody pointed out to me, in the general provisions of the state of Hawaii, there is this one provision on page 30, and it's 5-8. 7.5, and um, the, the title of it is called Aloha Spirit. And so I'd like to read to you what comes out of this from uh, these, this is kind of like um, the general provisions of, of what the state of Hawaii and its leaders would like to engender, not not as a law or demand, but what it wants to engender in all of us. This aloha spirit is a coordination of mind and heart within each person. Each person must think and emote good feelings to others. <laughs> Imagine this being in a <laughs> the general provisions. In the contemplation and presence of the life force, which is aloha, the following un- unuhi, laula, loa, may be used, and so um, I don't know what that means. And so the first is a word in Hawaiian called akahai, meaning unity, um, meaning kindness to be expressed with tenderness, lokahi, meaning unity, to be expressed with harmony, oluolu, meaning agreeable, to be expressed with pleasantness. Ha'a ha'a, meaning humility, to be expressed with modesty. Ononui, meaning patience, to be expressed with perseverance. These are traits of character that express the warmth and sincerity of Hawaii's people. It was the working philosophy of native Hawaiians. Aloha is more than a word, a greeting, or a salutation. Aloha means mutual regard and affection. Extends the warmth and caring with no obligation in return. With no obligation in return. So it's kind of that offering, you know, without expecting anything. And all of those other qualities, perseverance, patience, modesty, humility, it brings forth all of that in us. Of course, that sounds so sometimes unreachable, but we experience moments of that, we truly do. You know, if we can truly reconnect, re- recognize those experiences in in our practice. One of the things that I've appreciated Manindra's netta spirit for is that he frequently fed that back to me. He frequently fed back to me ways that there was qualities of mind that interwove into metta, like equanimity, compassion, patience. And I just so appreciated um, being able to re-know that in myself because we need to know those strengths to carry us through. So I think as many of you know, but I'm going to say this for the benefit of those who came in, in the second half, uh, to talk about the Brahma Viharas, which metta is part of. Because in, in the following days there'll be talks given on compassion, uh, equanimity and maybe sympathetic joy which are the three of the four Brahma Viharas the fourth being metta or loving kindness so Brahma means divine or high and uh, Vihara means abode or abiding, abiding place and so we learn in this these four Brahma Viharas basically to learn how to to abide in that place of kindness, of compassion, joy, sympathetic joy, equanimity. We have to learn how to know where they are, you know, to to kind of re-know that pathway that goes there, that has been sometimes long covered up by experiences in our lives. Um, you know, we've, or, or by habitual patterns that we've carved out in the pathways of our mind and our heart that we frequent over and over again. I remember once, uh, long time ago, teaching at Spirit Rock, that uh, community where we taught for a long time there um, out in Angela Center was around um, a lot of a cattle farm and uh, one yogi called it the cow paths of my mind. You know this this pathway that we kind of frequent over and over and over again, and so we fall into that just by habit. And so we need to learn how to refine or re-know, recognize the pathways that that give us strength, that help us more in our lives. When I was practicing with Ayakema a uh, long time ago one of our, our great um, dharma ancestors here in America and in the West, she talked about these four divine abodes or divine emotions as um, a way that we can respond to life. And she said, if, only, if we had only these four and the, and, and the practice of mindfulness, we would get through life with just no problem at all. And it was hard for me to imagine at that time. You know, I thought, gee, I really needed the kind of impatience and, and, and uh, uh, little irritations and, and even anger that was present in order to get my kids to do their homework or to get through life somehow. But these great strengths are, are you know, they're deeper and stronger than that. This is from um, a book by Nyanaponika Thera, one of our, also our Dhamma elders, from the book The Vision of Dhamma. And maybe this is a way that was um, described, a kind of idealistic way, but it's possible, you know. He talked about the 4 Brahmaviharas like this. They provide, in fact, the answer to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long-forgotten, revive joy and hope long-abandoned, and promote human sisterhood, brotherhood, against the forces of egotism. When I went into this practice, uh, this time around, I had this intention, knowing for a long time that I would do metta practice again, I had this intention of having as much willingness as I could muster up to open to whatever needed to be open to, because I knew that there were many painful wounds that still in mindfulness practice and vipassana practice kept coming up. And I and I thought it would be really good to do some metta practice as a way to kind of boost my overall practice. There were many places where I saw in my own mindfulness practice that I could get stuck, where I could get lost, where I felt too vulnerable, without any strength, without the balance of strength. And so I I wanted to develop the strength of metta for that reason. And so I practiced metta in in these two ways, um, which we use metta, actually, in two ways. And one is to develop it to incline the mind towards that goodness. That's the first way, to incline the mind towards the goodness. And the other way that we can develop metta, which I did simultaneously, is to develop um, and aim the mind, the experience towards jhana or absorption. And when that happens, you know, when we when we cultivate or um, develop the jhanas or the absorption practices, we learn how to develop or to um, create a mind that is so strong by aiming the attention over and over and over again towards the phrase, towards the person, towards the feeling, over and over and over again. When you do this, it creates this incredible force field that, where it's so difficult for anything else to enter. So that's what happens when you do a kind of jhana practice with metta. In that force field, none of the hindrances can come in. Or they when they come in, they're like so far away. And, um, or so minuscule or porous. So the hindrances are kept at bay and we're able to more, uh, in a more depthful way, experience that kind of unconditional love and kindness. When attachment, aversion, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt are not there, then what naturally arises is a kind of the well-being of love. So it was painful to, you know, to traverse the 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 terrain of my heart and mind sometimes, and of course sometimes it wasn't in doing the absorption practices. It was, you know, very blissful. But that wasn't the point for me uh, to strengthen the jhanas, or knowing how to access them. It wasn't the point. It was really to be able to open to what's difficult, um, to understand the complete terrain of my heart and mind, to understand it to such depth that I could see the deeper truths, the liberating truths. One of the things that, that happened as I went through the different individual persons and inclining the mind towards an unconditional acceptance and care of everything within myself, which would transfer towards accepting that within others, too. When I came, uh, having done this towards myself and then going towards the benefactor, really getting in touch when understanding and appreciating the beauty and the goodness of the benefactor, also appreciating the beauty and the goodness of my own heart. opening to how I could feel so attached or so um, controlling of ways towards a dear friend or, or my children. You no, know, Noticing the terrain of attachment, control, uh, different ways that attachment manifests there. Wanting them you know, to get their lives or particular ones of them to, to get it together like right now. I'm tired of waiting, you know. Um, uh, seeing seeing that and, and then being able to let go in a way that, e- where, where I see equanimity come into play. Where I can let their lives play out, let their the river of the karma of their lives play out not stand back and and just let them head towards danger, but do what I can, but not be attached to the result of what I was trying to do or trying to help them to do. When turning towards a neutral person, noticing my own unclarity, my own ways of delusion of not being able to connect, Not just with that person, but mostly with a care and love in myself, that a potential that I could have towards a person I didn't even know. And then towards a difficult person. Really accepting, connecting with ill will in my heart, that old habit of ill will in my own heart. And coming to realize, you know, that whether no, it it didn't matter how a person was acting you know caring about them didn't depend on how they were caring about them depended more on whether ill will was present or absent from my heart and really basing my connection with them in that and not with how they were acting in the world. Of course, you know, I think there were some questions about this, and um, I just want to clarify how when we do metta practice, it works and it begins on the relative level of things. We must begin with a concept of having a self and of other beings having a self. And that's how we begin the metta practice. One self offering metta to another self. But where it takes us, where it moves, is beyond a dualism, is beyond a separateness. That's where metta moves us towards. But we must begin in that place. That's how the Buddha taught it. By beginning to... uh, also, in a you know, very healthy way, we're developing a healthy sense of self. We need to do that. And when we do that, when we develop a sense of ourselves as you know, knowing a goodness in ourselves, it's much easier to know that in others, of course. Sometimes we know that through others first. But what, whatever way, developing a healthy sense of goodness about ourselves and then that that moves us towards dissolving the boundaries of separateness. Moves us from an egocentric way of uh, being towards a more ecocentric way. You know, kind of connected with all of life. Of course, we see in our practice how this egocentrism is such a problem. It it's it causes so much pain to ourselves and others. Um, <clears throat> this is a writing from Susie Gabelik. She's what she calls a deep ecologist. And it talks about um, a way in which we can maybe understand that we're in this ecocentric evolution. How maybe, she didn't say this, but how maybe we could see meta as being an, a more Echo-ECO-centric evolution. She said, someone made the point that fungus is more essential and crucial to the ecosystem than man. Because if fungus disappeared, then the her, Earth's whole ecology would be in trouble. Whereas if we disappeared, then everything would thrive <laughs> and do much better. I I learned later that fungus is a nitrogen fixer. It's kind of essential for balance. One of the ways I got in touch with ill will, which metta gets us in touch with this genuine place of the possibility of being free from ill will. I used a traditional phrase, and I used the phrases in Pali, and then... I used a phrase, the first phrase in Pali uh, for oneself, a Homi, the, the, the translation was, May I be free from enmity, may I be free from ill will. And I really wanted this, you know, as a wholesome wanting. wanted this inclination to be more and more natural in my heart Um, because I know that when this would happen, everything would fall into place. Once I worked with this little autistic boy, and just remembering working with him kind of gave me hope that, you know, I could really retrain the mind and heart in that area when it fell into ill will. So remembering this little autistic boy named Daniel... And this autism kind of manifests itself as these very limited patterns of behavior. And when I went into this um, a way that our community came together to try to help the son of the, the, one of the main judges of our community, our job was to help this little boy recognize new pathways of, of mind and heart. And you do this by uh, just accepting the pathways that were manifesting over and over and over again that this little boy manifested, but to gently turn or move or expand that boy, that little boy's pathways into another direction. And so one, just one of the things he did was he took his saliva, and he went to any place in the room, and he he just went back and forth with his, with his hand, up and down with that saliva on the wall, on, the, on, on balls, on playthings, on my hand, on everything. And so we needed to kind of you know, expand that. So while he was doing that, we would just say, that's okay, that's that, and just receive what he was doing over and over and over again. Receive it with a kind of kindness and love and acceptance. And then say, Daniel, look at this ball. And then I would just kick the ball and then put the ball in front of him and, and wait until he made the movement to kick. And this was like month after month after month. You know, each one of us had a kind of duty to do this. And I did that among other things, you know, about the ball. And so he would always go back to his old pathways but he learned little by little through the community working with him just um offering our help and he did you know he he was able then by just this reteaching him to connect with another pathway to kick the ball you no know, reteaching him when i was on the swing to actually push me on the swing you know to do those things and so now he's much more functional. He has a greater tools to live his life from. He's a, a teenager now, and um, it's lovely how he how it all unfolded. The second phrase that I used, "May I be free," is "May I be free from hurtfulness." homi. May I be free from hurtfulness. And this was so important to me, not in terms of hurting others, which I, you know, really truly wanted to be free of, also, but also in terms of myself feeling hurt, you know, the, the capacity for me to take things so personally, to find everything in life is blaming me, to you know, to take it so personally that everything, my thoughts or whatever happens is so wrapped around, so egocentrically wrapped around me, mine, I. You know, i just so sick and tired of it. <laughs> the you know, feeling blamed and then just running with it, just taking the ball and just saying, yes, I'm blamable, you know, and not really seeing the goodness in my heart and seeing that, no, you know, there are some cases where I'm not really blamable. Uh, but really taking it so personally, and this is that when I use the phrase, may I be free from hurtfulness, was so, so important to me. And I came across this passage, um, this particular translation of the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is an anthology of verses um attributed to the Buddha, and this particular translation is from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu of the um, Metta Forest Monastery in California. So I'll read the whole thing, and and this is uh, the first part, and this is uh, the part that has to do with pairs. Phenomena, I like his translation, by the way, because it has to do with the heart. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart, the track of the cart that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. And then this is the second part, which really kind of got to me. He or she insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who brood on this, hostility is instilled. Wow, did that get me. And then the second part of that pair. She, he insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those of you, for those who don't brood on this, hostility is stilled. Hostilities aren't stilled through hostility, regardless. Hostilities are stilled through non-hostility. This is an unending truth. So I just so wanted to (laughs) you know, find a place where I wasn't taking hostility, ill will, blame so personally. And then, you know, finding that place so deep in my heart that maybe I didn't do that as much out there either. And in relationship to that, you know, the blame that came with fault finding, um, in, in the last... Uh, the last phrase that I used is, May I know how to protect my own happiness. May I know how to protect my own happiness. Sukhi um, atanang pari harami. And so this was the one of the great ways, you know, where I didn't take things so personally, brood on it, you know. F- that my heart couldn't be still because it was constantly feeling blamed or accepting the fault-finding or doing fault-finding with others. Now, fault- finding in and of itself, you know, sometimes there are things that we need to see correctly, but in and of itself, uh, you know, sometimes it's very painful. Um, found also this other passage from these stories it's wonderful it's about the dhamma it's the dhammapada but it's verses and stories of the dhammapada and how certain verses came about so the verse that i just read to you this is the story that's behind that verse i love stories so um, this is the story of a certain um, Tara, Thera Ujanasani. While residing at the Jetavana Monastery, the Buddha uttered this verse with reference to Tara Ujanasani. Thera Ujanasani was always finding fault and speaking ill of others. Other bhikkhus reported about him to the Buddha. The Buddha replied to them, Bhikkhus, If someone finds fault with another so as to teach him in a good way, in, in good ways, it is not an act of evil and is therefore not to be blamed. But if someone is always finding fault with others and speaking ill of them, just out of spite and malice, he will not attain concentration. He will not be able to understand the Dhamma. And the moral intoxicants will increase in him. Then the Buddha spoke in verse as follows. In one who constantly sees the faults of others and is always disparaging them, moral intoxicants increase. She is far from extinction of moral intoxicants, or he is far from attainment of arahantship. I just found that so inspiring to read the story of how that came about. So when in, in doing the practice of metta we're we're supporting, we're we're reconnecting, we're in sometimes, you know, in some ways creating the energy around balance, patience, deep composure, the courage to open to the dark places. We do that in metta. It's not always easy. I mean most of metta practice is challenging to open to everything that we experience as a human being, to really accept whatever is there, to develop that truly wholesome sense of ourselves as a spiritual human being. Because spiritual doesn't mean just, you know, just totally pure. I mean, that's the aim, but uh, on the way there, it's the kindness to open to everything. That makes up this heart and mind. I was at a recent um, taught a recent retreat, and Alice Walker was there, one of the yogis. And she wrote this poem quite some time ago. But um, just wanted to to acknowledge her as a, a, she was in that retreat, which was very very challenging. Uh, had great composure and uh, her practice of metta that she does in the Tibetan way or tonglen really, really showed. And she actually wrote this poem in 1973. This poem, the ex- this is an excerpt from her poem called New Face. I have learned not to worry about love but to honor its coming with all my heart, to examine the dark mysteries of the blood with headless heed and swirl, to know the rush of feeling swift and flowing as water. The source appears to be some inexhaustible spring within our twin and triple selves. The new face I turn up to you, no one else on earth.